This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Ben Blaisdell, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. I should say see you again because this is going to be super awkward. So uh, (laughs) most people don't know, but we uh, are in the same college in the same department. We are literally like five doors from each other in terms of our offices. Um, But I have you on the show because we're going to talk about the work you do in critical race theory. We're going to talk about what it is so that we can hopefully get a really good representation of it in spite of all sorts of, uh, kind of misguided criticisms probably that that we hear. We're going to talk about how it relates to education and the work you do with teachers through a critical race perspective. So first, let me introduce the show. Uh, this is the Learning and Forgetting podcast on the Electric Agora network on electricagora.com. I'm Kevin Curry-Knight. I'm a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University and College of Education. And uh, Ben, if you could introduce yourself quickly. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Ben Blaisdell. I'm a assistant professor at, uh, in the College of Education at East Carolina University. Um, yeah, what else can I say? I do work with schools in a variety of places, uh, extensively in my own in district in the Chapel Hill area, um, but uh, some work overseas with schools and in other places as well. And I, I critical race theory is the primary lens through which I work to do racial equity work collaboratively with, with practicing educators. Nice. So uh, just to ease into things, let's talk about some non-educational stuff first. Uh, One of the questions I always like to ask people is, if you didn't do the work you did and you had to retire from the academy, what is it that you would do? What do you think you would do? I I guess it depends if I had the funding for it. But um, yeah, no, I I, I used to... Like be a billionaire? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be wealthy and not have to work. Now, I um, I worked at a wine shop back in the day, and I, and I still love that kind of world and work. So I could see getting into the wine business again, perhaps. Um, nice. Yeah, you know, I, I do teach Tai Chi classes sometimes, and if I was better at it, maybe I would make a go of that as a living. But um, you know, I'm, I'm not bad, but you know, not enough to not enough to pay the bills. Um, those are a couple couple interests. Um, nice. You know, people paid me to do you know, Anthony Bourdain's job without all the, uh, with all, with all of the hard physical parts of it, then I might do that too. So yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah I worked at a wine store after my undergrad and uh, for two and a half years and unexpectedly just dove head first and just loved all the knowledge of it. Yeah. Cool. Um, like my favorite part was talking to people, customers about, so I felt like it was my job to kind of really know Yep. You know, like the, the different varietals and the different regions and kind of the different uh, taste yep. profiles. And yeah, my favorite part too, absolutely. I see mean, we're five doors down, but we just learned something about each other. That's great. Yeah, right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> well, then let's get into um, <clears throat> I guess we should probably start by thinking about what critical race theory is because I want to explain what I'm trying to do in this podcast. Um, those who follow it know that a few episodes ago, I had on Dr. Samantha Hedges, who's at the Heterodox Academy, who's written some articles that have been critical of critical race theory. And what I'm trying to do is we have such a polarized environment where it seems like people either laud everything that falls under the label of CRT or just opposes everything that falls under the label of CRT. And very rarely do you see attempts at like honestly trying to figure out where each side is, is coming from. And I want this to be kind of like the episode where we talk about CRT from 
someone deeply within the field and knowledgeable about it. So with that preface, um, what would you say CRT is, especially for someone who's not terribly familiar um, coming at it from um, kind of a layperson's background? So there's a few ways to look at it, and, it, and it's talked about in a few different ways. Sometimes it's as a scholarly tradition. Sometimes it's as a community of scholars, um, which I both I think are, are accurate. In some ways, it's an interdisciplinary field. You know, is it is it a discipline itself at some point? You know, I think disciplines are all themselves social construction. So, so maybe one day it'll be considered a discipline. Um, I think one of the things I like to talk about it as, and I think those are all accurate ways to talk about it. In addition, I would say, in the way I like to talk about it, is it's a framework. Mm. It's it's an intellectual scholarly framework um, that helps us understand the kind of normality of race and racism. Um, really grew out of the U.S. and U.S. society, but really is increasingly more used, used more and more globally. And there's some I can, if you want, I can go through a few of the things that. Um, characterize critical race theory. There's yeah, why don't we go through some of There's like lists of these things that people use, and there are different lists. So uh, there's one or two that I draw from more than others, but there's but that changes too depending on how it needs to be used. Right. So with the understanding that that uh, just like any sort of uh, movement or theoretical framework, there's going to be a lot of diversity. Um, what are some of the core? I guess. I want to say tenets of the approach that most CRT um, scholars would agree on. Yeah. And so like one of the ones I use from is there's an article by um, Solorsano and Yoso who talk about this and they're talking about both critical race theory and what, and an offshoot that they call lat crit. Um, but so the first kind of characteristic is the centrality of race at the same time being intersectional, the, the, the connection of racial oppression to other forms of oppression, but in a critical race theory framework, we center race in our analysis. Um, and that's a big one. And it's also a big one to start with because rather than race being a factor, as some fields look at it as one of the many factors that can cause inequity, we, we center it as this is the central tenant we're going to look through. Is that because is that because CRT advocates really think that it is the central explainer of inequalities and power structures, or is it because this is the one we want to focus on with the understanding that there are others? It's just this is. I think there's both, right? Um, And and you can. David Gilborn actually has a good article about the the primacy of race and talks about intersectionality, and they're both important in critical race theory, both intersectionality and and the centrality of race. I think it is part it's in its history is that race coming from the law in particular is where critical race theory was born, that race was under theorized and looked at as kind of a factor, but not as a central aspect of how we understand the law. And I think we've adapted that in critical race theory and education to say the same thing that rather than looking at it as a factor, like what, like how is race beyond just a factor in educational inequity, but a way we actually understand what education is and how it functions. Um, And it doesn't mean that other, like that people shouldn't look at gender or at times center gender in their analysis, right? From a critical race theory framework, what we do, our concern is, the is 
the, what's called the normality of race or the inherentness of race to U.S. society, that it's not an outlier, it's not an exception, it is part of the foundational fabric of, U, of U.S. society. And so we, we take a hard dive into trying to name all the ways that happens to see if we can disrupt that a bit. Right, and um, it seems like um, part of that, one of the core tenets seems also to be, um, well, you mentioned that this comes out of law, and I think that's really important for people to understand because critical legal studies, which is kind of where critical race came from, yep. seem to have one of the core tenets that there are really, when we think about neutral principles in law, when we think about terms like person or equality, um, they masquerade as neutral terms. But if you really look at how they're applied, um, they're generally never neutral. There's always some sort of content in in the idea that's not really explicitly given, maybe not even explicitly known to the people using the term. Exactly, right. And so the, the second characteristic is about disrupting major majoritarian narratives about, about race. Well, majoritarian narratives in general, but especially as how they relate to race. And so that idea that, you know, uh, uh, understanding of what you just said, person, a person status, what counts as person is in our country racialized. Um, and so we want to disrupt the idea that that's not true. And so <clears throat> two of the big um, narratives or ideologies that, that CRT digs into are colorblindness or race mm -hmm. evasiveness. Um, we're trying to get away from ableist language a little bit, but um, race evasiveness, but also liberalism. The idea that our social institutions are inherently set up for equity and justice and that these anomalies happen and we can root them out, but rather our understanding of you know, we mentioned law, but also education, and we can go into many fields are, are already racialized. Like we're not, people look at critical race theory, I think, and we're bringing race into the equation. Why are we talking about race rather than just fairness of all people? And well, we say it was already racialized before we started talking about it in critical race mm. theory terms, that the concept of personhood, um, uh, you know, Charles Mills talks about this, right? That, that, that people of color and black people in particular in our history, uh, have been given an afforded subperson status. He talks about it in that way. Um, and, and so critical race theory looks at how that happens. How does that happen in the law? And in my field, how does that happen in education? And me specifically, how does that happen even with well-meaning teachers who are really trying to do right by students, including students of color? Right. So one question I have before maybe we can get into some specific examples in education of how supposedly neutral structures may not be so neutral and may be racialized um, is one of the questions that, that, or one of the objections that, that I hear a lot to, to CRT is, okay, when, when you talk about liberalism as kind of racialized, CRT folks are trying to throw out and do away with liberalism. And I'm never sure exactly how to respond because I don't know if that's true. So when you, when I read someone like Charles Mills, it's never clear. It seems like his goal is to become, is for liberalism to become more neutral, to actually try to become more neutral. But in order to do that, he's saying we have to recognize that the way it stands, it is not neutral. It, so I don't know if the question makes sense, but would you say that, that critical race theorists, and of course there's a lot of diversity here, are trying to undo something like liberalism? Or would you say that they're trying to say, look, 
we want to get to a, a fairer, more equitable, more neutral place. We just need to understand first that there are inequities that we really have to to deal with non-neutral. Yeah, I, I have to think a little more about that where where CRT crits or <laughs> CRT scholars in general fall. My guess is as you as you uh, mentioned, there's a there's a range. I think I see both in when I read the scholarship from people. Um and, and so in there's a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by mm-hmm. Delgado and Stefancic, um, which is used a lot. Um and they talk about like kind of the idealist strain versus the realist strain. I, I think it's, I, I actually think that, mm-hmm. that binary is a little simplistic, but I understand why they wrote it that way. And that the idea that the idealists camp might say, yeah, to, to the point of, yeah, we're actually trying to get to this place where we don't need to talk about race anymore. We're to, to, to a liberalism that actually functions the way it says it functions and, and where it doesn't actually treat people of color as sub, as sub persons. Um, I think the realistic camp, which I, I'll admit I fall into, um, if there is camps to fall into, um, says that's nice, but that's never going to happen. Our country, we're it's trying to create a country that never existed. Like how do we create a country that's never existed out of the country <laughs> that, that we're in right now that we will always, and that's the tenant of racial realism that we will always at our inception, we are a, a country founded on racism, and we will all that will always be a foundational part of who we are as a as a country. Um, and so, I think they, you know, then people get, well, what's the hope? Why do you work? And then we can talk through why why we still do work is because you can still get to instances of racial justice. You can still make people's lives better. You can still through through the working against oppression, you can become more human in that way, right? Mm-hmm. And hopefully bring others along too, but ultimately become more human. Um, right. Even though utopia is not possible, it doesn't mean you can't make marginal improvements. Yeah. And I think they would, some folks would maybe not even say marginal improvements. They're still real improvements. Um, but, but they're, but they're in the face of, of oppression. Right. And so yeah, that, makes, that distinction makes sense. Yeah, well, why don't we then make this more kind of real and by focusing on some examples in in the field of education, which is where you are. So you work with teachers primarily, so you're not as concerned with what kids are taught in schools as much as like how teachers and administrators think about the work they do and structure schools. So what are some of the ways that schools appear to be neutral with regard to race, but as it cashes out on the ground? Uh, schools are are racialized. Yeah, there's, there's a variety of ways. I mean, so one easy way to look at that is in the the work on disproportionality in, in terms of discipline. So mm-hmm. rules that are supposed to be neutral, race neutral, or colorblind, or, or those things about respect, about comportment, um, are in fact, actually highly racialized, right? And so even teachers who think they aren't, they don't think about race overtly will, you know, call out students of color uh, for the same types of behaviors that white students can get away with. And that's just pretty extensive literature on that. And I've seen it in my own, in my own work with schools pretty extensively. Can you, um, can you give some examples of kind of when you've seen something like that happen? I've seen students like just call out an answer in the classroom. And, and when students of color in particular, black students do that, they'll, 
be it becomes a behavior issue rather than being interpreted as enthusiasm or engagement. Um, I've seen students do pretty blatant physical things in the classroom, whether purposely and meanly against student, other students, whether white students or students of color. And I, so I've seen white students do this, um, make noise as they're going through the classroom, push chairs around and things like that. Um, and then in the same exact classroom, seeing all this is, and I'm talking about elementary level, right? A, a black girl skip across the classroom to go get a book and zeroed in by the teacher to say, like, that's not how we act in this classroom. You need to learn how to, like, you need to learn how to behave in the classroom. So there's this, like, real policing of um, student behaviors that happens in particular for students of color. And so a good book that talks about this is um, by Subini Anima. It talks about the hyper surveillance and hyper discipline and hyper labeling of students of color. Yeah. So, so why do you think this, why do you think that is then? Do you think it's because teachers arguably come into their classrooms kind of enculturated in certain, I guess, stereotyped ways of seeing different racial categories? Or do you think it's, is there another reason for it? I mean, surely it's not that they, they mean to do this and maybe a few teachers do, but. Sure, sure. No, a lot of, like I said, so some, some teachers mean it and I've seen that (laughs) enough times as well, Um, but some don't, right. And don't, and I think if you actually told them they were doing it, you get a couple responses by well-meaning teachers. Sometimes it's defensiveness, um, and saying, and they and they try to justify why one case was a problem and the other case was not. Um, and I think that gets to, to your first point. Yeah, that people are socialized into thinking about certain ways of behaving in certain spaces are are better, but also socialized to view blackness and whiteness differently. Like we have enough messages in society when I write a little bit in my work and as other people have more extensively about anti-blackness, how we're really tra- taught to pol- as, as white people, even if we're not policed to police blackness and to find it, it's, it's visible and vocal expression to be a problem, except when we're kind of fetishizing it. Um, so I think that happens. I think um, our connection, and I do this in my work, how we view space is very connected to how we view race. Um, and so whereas somebody might not have a problem with how a black person is interacting outside the classroom, although we have enough examples of where people, white people do have that issue. Um, when it comes into the classroom, all of a sudden white rules apply in a kind of different way. I think that happens. And, and, and so, and part of that is, you know, I've even seen teachers of color police black and brown students more than white students too. So so it's not just the, the socialization that happens outside in society. It's how we become and start to view schools and what, what being in school means um, takes on a racial character. Yeah, I, it, that brings to mind when I was a teacher in uh, a majority-minority, um, or I guess a minority-majority high school, um, we had a, a very diverse faculty. I would say most of the teachers were black, and when when we would talk sometimes, they would say, like, the, well, the problem with you white teachers, you, you're too easy on the black kids. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to be tougher. And it was, they didn't say the black kids, but since the school was about 97% black, it was kind of obvious that it, it was kind of meant to, like, the black kids. Um, and that was really interesting. Uh, I was never quite sure what to make of that. If that would yeah, fall I mean, under an example of kind of, you know, policing 
well, black I think, kids differently. Yeah, than- I, I think we'd have to look at a couple. One, we'd have to, I think, talk to people there to know what was going on. But and I think in some of the issues that happens is so some, and I, I'm fortunate to get to work with teachers across race and, and highly racially conscious teachers across um, across race. I think some some teachers of color I've worked with are really understanding that society is going to police their students of color. And so they're trying, they're understandably mm-hmm. fearful for how size of what society is going to do to people and they want them to be safe. So I think, you know, even Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about that in Between the World and Me when he's talking about um, uh, discipline at home, right? Yeah. Punishment at home, corporal punishment at home and things like that. So, you know, there's, there's that happening again. I would, um, yeah. So I think in that a specific example, I think we just have to know more, right? We have to know more what's going, but, but certainly I'm, all I'm, teachers can take, all teachers can take up a normalized discourse in a school that, that favors whiteness or, or punishes black and brownness, right? All teachers right. can do that. Now there, I think there's a tendency more for those of us who are white to do it, but all people can take up that culture and discourse. Right. So in the example that you gave where teachers may police black students differently than they police white students, it seems like there's two issues at play. There's, there's differences in the way we enforce, but there's also potentially differences in the way we write rules. So, I mean, when I think about CRT and I don't, I don't generally work from that framework, but if I were to give a defense of, of the CRT position here, it would be, we live in a country that's predominantly white. It's mostly white people who are making the rules. And even the most well-meaning white person, when they're making school rules, almost consider white people as the people who will be subject to these rules. So they create rules that are very much with whiteness in mind without necessarily so it's in some sense white becomes the abstract norm so we create rules understandably that would sort of be geared towards towards that would that be kind of an accurate i think more or less i'd have to think about the the nuances of that might be a little more nuanced than that but yeah i think you're generally speaking yes i think that that idea of the abstract norm being on being deraced but that actually means white I think is what's happening in that situation. The abstract norm being whiteness. And so that teachers, schools in general, because it's not just teachers, um, write rules with whiteness in mind, I think was the, the phrase you used. And I think that's, I think that's true. And, and I think when we think of what school is and what, how we should be in school, it's not, it's not just about whiteness, but part of it is about, like, what does it mean to be a good student? Notion of good student, notion of somebody's attentive, um, are tied to notions of whiteness. I think, you know, we would probably both agree that, you know, there's an over, there's too much worry about policing students' bodies in school, right? Or probably policing their minds, right? We're, we're really, there's sites of often of complacency and compliance, um, things like that, compliance in particular. Um, and so CRT looks at, in particular, how that's racialized, right? Other fields look at the, the issue of the overfocus on compliance in schools. Critical race theory does that by adding, let's look at whiteness, but also look at anti-blackness. Let's look at notions of how race affect um, ideas about compliance and comportment. The purpose of being in the room. Yeah. So, so what are, can we get maybe one or two examples of what some of those rules might be? What are some of the rules uh, that we could think of that are written with this 
you know, by people who do not think th themselves as kind of racialized, but they write rules that end up cashing out to favor whiteness. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the rules probably on, on dress code are both racialized and, and certainly gendered. Um, so like the, like the, you, like you have to wear your pants, have like up, up here. Pants, right. pants, I wouldn't talk about That's hair is a big one, like how you're, how you're allowed to wear your hair, what right. hairstyles are considered appropriate, you know, those, any kind of what appropriate is always um, a tough one. Um, yeah, it, it's funny, we're seeing, I've, I've seen a lot of stories in the news over the past six months or so of black students being suspended or yeah. something for, for hair related issues. And it doesn't seem like this is a new thing. It just seems like we're becoming a lot more conscious about the stories about it. Yeah, 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 right. You know, and, and despite the consciousness of people like pointing it out it's still happening which is interesting too but um so i uh yeah no, so i think those are rules any of the rules about respect become easily racialized because how do you how does one culturally speaking just in different cultures respect looks differently what it, what it means to be respectful is differently mm. but it's not just a cultural difference it's also a racial difference right and because even the same again so there's the rule itself is like respect means looking in a certain way towards somebody speaking in a certain way to an adult whereas different different groups of people might be socialized in different way to, to show that type of respect um and we can get a whole side conversation about and are the students even respected when they get to the school in the first place and that gets more complicated but and then even when students of color show respect in the ways that adhere to white norms, they might not be viewed as adhering to those norms, right? So they're be simply because the way their voice sounds or the way the teacher perceives their voice to go with their body is mm. triggering something in the teacher to think of disrespect happening there. Again, because we've seen so many messages about, we've too often been socialized to view blackness as, as negative. And so I think that's all wrapped up into a kind of complex mess of how we treat students in the classroom. And, and the interesting thing about this is I think the easy way to focus on this is to talk about the discipline issue because it's so blatant. But I see it academically, too. It, it's how, how we value students' worth, even academically, is highly racialized as well. And, and one of the pieces oh. I shared with you before this, I, I try to pick that apart a little bit, how, you know, when a student is in a group, how they show what they know, how they show their intelligence, what we count as intelligence itself mm -hmm. becomes racialized, how, you know, how somebody becomes a student in the classroom who we think is a good student who deserves more curriculum that we're going to give you and more interesting curriculum and better curriculum is, is affected by race. Right. So, um, then uh, one of the criticisms that I hear sometimes leveled at people's understanding of CRT comes to mind, which is how doesn't what we've just talked about ultimately just evolve into um, a bunch of stereotypes that are misguided both because they treat all people of the same race or skin color the same way and or that they're problematic stereotypes because, you know, some people are going to say, well, um, these norms are just norms of good conduct. And what we're saying cashes out to saying that black students should not be, let's say, held accountable to norms of good conduct. Um, so let's go with that first one first. I mean, can we talk about blackness in a sort of way where we can sort of assume that the same culturization 
happens to all black people? No, I mean, like, like white people, like any other racial group, black people are not a monolith, right? There's a variety of what it means to be black. Um, and certainly not my area to speak to um, about, about that aspect of it. But all people face, all, all people live within a, a, a racial structure in our country. And so that, that there's a commonality often in how that plays out in black people's lives. And one of the things that critical race theory does is it forefronts experience, experiential knowledge and story and narrative from the communities we work with. And so when you've worked in enough schools and you've worked with enough black and brown students and you've worked with enough black and brown teachers and black and brown administrators, a commonality of experience starts to surface that you really see that the ways that they are able to or not able to interact in settings such as schools um, is different from how white students are able to often engage in schools. And so, you know, and to deny that and say that like, Oh, we're treating all black people the same. Right. If we just came in and said, well, all black people like, X type of music. Therefore, we're just going to use that in the classroom. Mm, well, that would right. be reductive no matter what kind of person we work with. But we can talk to the people who are in our classroom. We can get to know the people in our classroom. And if we use a racial lens in that, that's not to say, and you're all the same, but let's talk about here, this, this racial lens. How does that affect you? Have you had this experience? Have you a different experience? Maybe we can adjust even what our racial lens is by talking to you. So it's not, right. yeah. it would be, it would be bad. Any field would be bad if it was reductive in the way it, it tried to narrate people's lives and critical race theory would be equal bad if it did, equally bad if it did that. But if right. race theory is done well, it does, it's done with more um, fidelity and, and expertise than that. Yeah. See, this is sort of the, um, this is very different from what I think um, some critics understanding of what CRT is up to uh, because I hear a lot of folks saying that, you know, one of the problems with CRT is that we're just essentializing these racial stereotypes. And if I, I hear you correctly, you're saying we're not really trying to essentialize anything. We're just saying there does seem to be a commonality of experience among black, black and brown people that isn't being valued as much as it could in a white society. And maybe in an ideal world, we wouldn't kind of hierarchy, we wouldn't make a hierarchy of these, um, these uh, types of, of, of styles or ways of being. Right. And I think part of what's happening is mm-hmm. that it's not that we're trying to find out what all black people are facing, what all black people are like and how all black people learn. Right. But we, so the, the focus, the focus is actually back on structure, right? The focus is back on how does society attempt to make all black people the same? What message does Ooh. it, Say, does it send to try to essentialize black people or Latinx people or Asian people, right? What, what is it? How does race act in that way that's reductive and particularly, particularly, and reductive by itself is bad enough because it's dehumanizing, but, but beyond reductive, it's oppressive. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wonder if it's too early to, to bring up the question of, um, these days, when we hear critical race theory talked about, usually when it's talked about negatively, um, but even sometimes when it's talked about positively, we hear two names always associated with it, which is Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. And before the show, we were talking because I had heard on an excellent 
episode of Brittany King's uh, YouTube show uh, where they discuss kind of the pro side and the con side. Several of the critical race, uh, I guess, champions on that show distanced themselves from Kendi and D'Angelo by saying simply, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying they're, they're not generally understood to be working within a CRT framework. Can we talk about like how related those two w- might be to what we're talking about here? Um, yeah, you know, and, and they're both, they're pretty different from each other, I believe too. Yes. Um, yeah. but you know, t- talking about Kendi first is, you know, and, and I think Kendi's done some great things, obviously. Who am I to say that <laughs> Kendi's a very well-respected scholar? Um, uh, but I don't see him as a well, critical, I, I, I I should pause. critical race we scholar. Should, we that? should pause it and say one of the problems I have is that Kendi is very well-respected in certain places and completely denigrated in other places, and yeah. there just is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. You, yeah, yeah. I heard at some point, I heard a Google talk with Kendi where he gave a, what he thought was a long answer. I thought it was actually pretty succinct. And he said, sorry for rambling. And the host said, no, it's an honor. And <laughs> I'm thinking like, yeah. okay, so we have a clear case of reverence and we have clear cases of just absolute, this guy is just out yeah. to lunch. And uh, so I just yeah. wanted to preface with that because that's so, yeah. that just and, and so, you know, one, first I'll say, I don't, I don't, and I don't, I don't want to speak for Dr. Kendi, but I don't, like, I don't think of him as a critical race scholar. Like, I don't see him situating his work in that. I don't see him using the, the, the CRT analysis. Maybe he does and, and I'm missing it, but, um. He doesn't say I, so in either of his he books. Say so. I think, you know, I think he considers himself an historian and certainly an anti-racist scholar and worker, broadly speaking. Um, and there's a lot of value in what he's brought to the conversation, really. Like, I, in the work with schools, his kind of succinct ways, especially in how to be an anti-racist, succinct ways of talking about racism or not are useful. Um, from a CRT perspective, they also might be a little, I would argue, maybe a little limited and a little simplistic. I, I wish maybe there was more structure focus in what he talks about. Um, I don't see that as much in, in that piece, in that, and, um, in that book in mm-hmm. particular. I, um, yeah. And so I don't like, it's interesting when people, I think people are signaling, uh, you know, singling out Kendi in particular because he's, famous right and he's got a, a book that a lot of people have read and he's and he's influenced the discourse in a certain way um so it's interesting there, there's that critique of kendi and again i like kendi with some and have some critiques of of kendi's work um i think probably my biggest one of my bigger critiques of one of his arguments is at the end of that book of how, how to be an anti-racist he goes into the kind of a the metaphor of cancer about racism being a cancer on U.S. society where he didn't used to think it was that, but now he thinks it is that. So the metaphor of this serious disease and it is serious and all encompassing. And he gives, you know, great personal accounts of his own (laughs) dealings with um, really intense form of cancer. Um, I think I I don't actually know that that metaphor, however, is actually a CRT analysis of, of racism. I would argue like if we're going to do terms, I mean, it's not like, racism isn't a cancer on the body of the country. It would be the respiratory system, right? It would be the circulatory system. It's something that the country, as we know it, needs to survive, right? And to me, that's a more structural perspective look, and, and, and I would argue a more critical race perspective on how racism operates in U.S. society. 
Right. So this is almost somewhere where, um, again, another scholar that we often hear associated with CRT, who I don't think associates herself with the CRT framework, is Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, the 1619 Project. Right, right. And I, I feel like what you're saying in terms of thinking of racism as a, as a respiratory system rather than a foreign body cancer is kind of closer to my understanding of her approach which is to say that racism has been a central feature of the American project to the point where had we not had it, the American project would be radically different and may not even have succeeded. Um, yeah, that would, so, and I know, I, I know of her project, of course, and of her work a bit. I don't, I haven't read her as much. So I don't want to talk again for her work, but that does sound more, more in line of the way I would certainly, the way my understanding of CRT lines up with how race and racism plays out in U.S. society. It is, that, it is that foundational. Right. I mean, so my understanding of, of Kendi, um, and I hope we're not winding too much here, but um, it is a really fascinating conversation. I feel like I think that my the way I understand Ibram Kendi is he thinks about race the way Karl Marx thinks about the state, which is as follows. Race is this fiction that we invented through capitalism, and it either perpetuated or sustained many inequalities that may not have existed had we not invented it. But we can get rid of it. But the problem is we can't just get rid of it because there's so many inequalities that can't be gotten rid of unless we use race as the way to view them and make sense of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to strengthen the power of this thing. For Kendi, it's race. For Marx, it's the state. We're going to strengthen the power of this thing because only it can help get rid of the inequalities that it created. And once we do that, then we can get rid of it because there's no more need for it. That's kind of the way Karl Marx thought about the state. Hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the way Kendi thinks about race. I feel like people miss, and this may be where he differs from the realist side of critical race theory, because he does seem to be an extreme idealist at the end of the day. He is a sort of race abolitionist. Mm -hmm. He just puts the abolition after we really have to deal with race through racialized terms in order to get rid of these inequalities. Yeah. And, I, and, and that part of it, I actually think is some of the value of his work, right? As, as much as I might not where he positions race in, 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 in the fabric of the country. And I, he and I maybe differ there, his centering of race to that extent. And that the only way to get through these types of solution is through a race lens, which is what he does in the book. That to me is more in line with CRT. I think there's just, again, so like I said, there's things I actually really like about his language. And I think he offers useful ways in working with schools to say, okay, but if we use this racial perspective and what he terms of, of anti-racism and he goes through like racist, sexist, like in these intersectionalities. And I find that all very useful because it helps me talk with teachers and administrators. Again, going back to these ideas about comportment or about dress code that we have language to use that pretty succinctly captures no, you're actually structuring this into your school. Here's what you're, here's what you're doing here. So, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying um, uh, about how his idealism in the end. But he, at the same time, he offers to me, I should say, uh, some useful language to use when actually trying to intervene in racism in specific sites. Right. Yeah, and I think the big fear, um, going back to kind of my analogy of Kendi to Marx, um, is that, you know, Marx had this hope that if you just strengthen the power of the state and give it to the proletariat rather than the bourgeoisie, and that's, in, by Kendi's analogy, give it to the anti-racists rather than the racists, you can sort of 
alleviate the inequalities and then the state will wither away because there's no more job for the state to do. Mm. But history would remind Marx and Marxists that the state never went away. Once we strengthened it, it just got stronger and it took that strength to do a whole. And I think the big fear that I see people have with CRT or their understanding of CRT is that in the same way, if we just strengthen the power of race, we're just going to reify these categories and we're just going to push ourselves so far into these boxes that there's going to be no hope of either getting rid of them in the idealist sense or lessening their power in the realist sense. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know what the response would be to that. Is there that danger? Yeah, I'd have to think about, you know, because when I do this this kind of talk, it sometimes comes to this part of the conversation. And I'll, I'll frame it this way, is that, my ultimate work, my, my main work, I should say, is not concerned with eliminating race in the United States, right? And not imagining the United States without race. Um, I would like that. I think maybe there are people who do that and do that better. Um, mine is really about strategizing against race. I'm sorry, strategizing against right. racism, against racism. Right? Yeah. And, and, and in very specific places in my community, in the places in my broader community that I'm allowed to work and where I'm able to kind of organically connect with people in, in meaningful ways about this kind of this issue, right? Who are seeing we have a race issue here. Let's talk. Maybe we can maybe we, we can maybe we can shake this up a little bit and maybe we can make some people's lives a little bit better, a little bit different, um, change the rules a little bit. Um, that's really where I see, I should say that's my work in critical race theory. I think it's not wrong to ask these bigger questions. The problem sometimes of those bigger questions is like, aren't you just like making, you're making race more real basically by focusing on race, the way we do in critical race theory is that their solutions often then come back to these colorblind solutions. If we stop talking about race, if we don't agree, if we go to fairness, and that's just all lands on a landscape of white supremacy and anti-blackness. And so like, but they don't even see the landscape, right? It just looks like round to them. So um, if that makes sense, right? So yeah, no, it it, it does. That might be my response to the critique. In some ways, it's like, that's nice that you're saying that, but what reality are you actually living in? That's a nice idea. That's a nice idea you have. Yeah. You know, when I'm walking, when I'm walking on the landscape of the United States, particularly in school contexts, that doesn't, it doesn't give me much to do and to work with. Right. Yeah, no, it does make sense. Because one of my frustrations with anti CRT arguments is they they will kind of level the argument of, okay, but you're just making race more than it is. And my problem with that is, but you are presupposing that race wasn't as much as it was simply because we weren't talking about it. And whether or not, you know, I don't I don't know if I have a firm opinion on that. But the criticism is bad because it presupposes what was exactly at issue from the CRT side of things. Right. And it's assuming, is that, assuming one person's making a supposition, the other person is not right. <laughs> right. That's right. So instead of right. So, so, but you have to tackle that presupposition first and explain why you think race wasn't really an issue before. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I can imagine, you know, you can easily do a thought experiment where, at least I think I can, where the U.S. didn't have racism at its center, we could imagine uh, indigenous people are are here, uh, Europeans came, but they landed somewhere else that didn't involve the conquest of indigenous people. African people maybe did the same thing at some point. They kind of stumbled on on 
land and kind of gradual integration both always happened. Um, and racism and racial hierarchy was never a part of it. But I always remind people like, that's not the history we have. It's right. like, it's, it's an imaginable history, right. but it's not the history that we have. It never happened. Right. We can imagine all of that and what would have happened if, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Maybe we get some answers out of that. I just don't, I just don't know what kind of answers we get out of that. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, not to say that we can never think that way and we can never imagine. Cause I think there's a place in critical race theory for imagination. Um, Mm. One, one scholar I like in critical race theory a lot, um, John Calmore, who writes on the racialization of space, um, who I've drawn a lot from his work. You know, one I think to paraphrase his quote is something like critical race theory imagines a different reality and tries to live up to that standard, tries to live up to that world. And so what it does is it, it brings race into the center of its analysis to say, here's all the racial things happening, not in the U.S. context in general, but for this law or for this setting, or in my case, for this school, like yeah. what if, you know, we're going to, we, 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 you know, white supremacy, we talk about the first day. Right. And so let's talk about white supremacy. Now let's imagine what your school, what would your school look like if white supremacy wasn't here? And what, and what do we have to get from point A to point B? And that's complicated again, especially from a racial realist perspective, we never really get rid of white supremacy because the society it's embedded in society, but we can still live differently under it. By, by pushing ourselves that forcefully to, to think through it. Right. Um, so maybe we could turn back to, to schools a little bit. Um, the first question I have then is, okay, so we've established that the idea is that schools are sort of um, necessarily racialized, at least in the U.S. context, Um that we may not be able to get away from that. And even the best meaning teachers in the world who are functioning under this system, we could call it a, a systemic racism, probably, um, can't necessarily get away from it. So that doesn't give a lot to work with in terms of if you're a teacher who really wants to subvert some of the racism, what can you do? It's like you're afflicted with this thing that you can't, you're told that you can't really know about because it's so deeply hidden but your job is to fight against it. Yeah. Well, one, you can bring that up first. One of the first steps is to bring that awareness is, and so, you know, I use the word white supremacy a lot is, well, how does white supremacy influence the way I value my students? What, what I consider a good reader, what I consider how they became a good reader. Um, when I think about the context, when I think about, um, what, you know, why might this per like we, we were really reductive in education to say this per this student is valuable and should be doing this because I have, you know, I've checked off all these standards they can do on the standard course of study and, and they've done like and they have this kind of score on whatever standard assessment we're going to use and therefore they get to do this. Um, one thing we can do is start to question how does race affect all of those things, all of that judgment of students? And then we can start to ask questions about what might be a different way of judging students. Like Maybe students show knowledge in ways that those things don't capture. Maybe students are actually able to to form really well thought out opinions about a topic that those things don't show. And and can we capture these other ways of looking at students? And so one thing that CRT is is it's interdisciplinary and it's always adding perspectives and knowledge, like any good discipline or field or perspective should yep. be doing. It's not static. And so, for example, well, one school I'm working with is we're combining CRT analysis with um, the work on 
culturally, I'm sorry, historically relevant pedagogy. So um, this is Goldie Muhammad's work, right? Um, I think it's historically relevant pedagogy. I don't want to get the naming wrong, but it's so looking at ideas of black joy and black genius. And what does that mean? And what does that mean from historical, from groups that have, were able to think about um, the classroom, our students as groups in a more socially just way where we're not sorting and segregating people as much and that we're looking at different ways to educate. And we can bring that into a critical race framework because critical race framework gives us the ability to, to gives us the theory, gives us the language to pick apart how race is embedded in what we do. And then we can start to imagine different ways of doing things. And we could say, is race involved here? Is racism involved here? Are we, are we still upholding a racial hierarchy? Are we disrupting a racial hierarchy? And we can ask ourselves questions. So it seems tough at first when we're looking at critical race theory, um, that it's not giving us solutions, but it really opens the door for a lot of solutions. I mean, before you talked about narrative and like, so another way is counter narrative or counter story that CRT puts wording to here's what might look different. Here's how it might look different. And here's okay. like, right. And so, and then we'll, let's tell the story. I, I, have, I know a scholar who told uh, two, two scholars um, who told the story of Trayvon Martin and they told they, the end of their article, they tell a counter story where Trayvon Martin lives. This could have happened. This could have happened. And this could have happened. And those things happened. Trayvon Martin lives at the end. Um, and so that's, those are solutions actually. Now we can ask why don't people do those things? And then we can say, well, people, because, and then let's look at the ways that doesn't do that. But then we can also say, well, how can we get to that? How can we get to a place where, where Zimmerman doesn't think the way he does, doesn't feel he has the right to do that to somebody? Like we can start to ask those questions. And there are, there are actually, to me, those are actually real solutions because mm. we, can, we can, from just a teacher or administrator or a counselor I work with, you know, a school librarian, work with all these folks, we can say, well, if you were going to do that in a school context, what would be, right, what would be the more racially equitable way to do that same thing? So I actually think it does give possibility. Yeah. So do you think it's possible then? So I imagine, well, I guess the first question would be, how would you recommend that teachers who are listening to this um, kind of go about doing that? How, how would you th- recommend they go about kind of reflecting on like, okay, well, what is it that I value in students? Why do I value that way? What are the ways that race could affect this? Because again, we're talking about something that is stipulated to be so far under the hood of consciousness. Mm-hmm. That just the idea of examining it is awkward. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much out there, right? I mean, fun that there are, there are so many people doing race equity work now to get some people help come help educate you to give you a framework with un- to understand racism. Um, there's so much to read now that, and, and some of it obviously books and articles, but just on the internet sites, there are so many sites that are, that have this knowledge more readily available that we can start to, we can start to really increase our racial literacy. First of all, is we have to not just look at, so even when we're thinking about how we're thinking our own thinking about race, we can't just stick there. Not, it's not just about my individual thoughts about race. It's how that interacts with how race is structured into kind of our daily way of doing things. And can we start to practice, right? It takes practice to say, okay, let's look at grading. How is grading racialized? Let me, let me give it, let's look at an example let me try to use the language. Here are the terms that I've, I've come to learn these five terms about race and racism. Let's practice and let's see how I can understand how that's happening in this scenario. 
And another thing that's important is that we often think about this in such an individualistic way. Yeah. Individual teachers doing this at different places, we're going to all get into their minds and then they're individually going to go do things differently, right? It, in my experience, it works so much better at schools when you have groups, cohorts of people doing this and pushing each other together because then, because you're, then you're actually, pro- you're practicing a language. You're doing it as community rather than like lone gunslingers trying to intervene and shoot down systemic oppression, right? You know, it, it, it right. is, it is really groups of people working together, working together is really key, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, almost by definition, systemic racism can't really be understood on an individual level. So, like, when you're talking about how is grading racialized, I'm imagining that it's probably best to show that on the macro level, statistics show, let's say, that it is racialized. I don't know if statistics do show that. I'm assuming they do. Mm-hmm. Um, than it is to show that any individual teacher is racialized in their grading process it's like it's more of a macro phenomenon it seems like than than it would be right a micro and so and so that's, that's like that's more macro phenomenon and then we can ask ourselves well then why do i still justify grading why do i still justify grading for dis- decisions about promotion why do i just justify grading for decisions about you know heterogeneous ability grouping in a classroom if we know that there's a problem with the grading system itself or, or how could I? Or, or I mean, could it also be how could I justify it differently, in a yeah. way that incorporates more inputs? Right, but I think like in the terms of like, I think if we understand the ways that we the, the discourses we use to justify oppressive systems, then we can start to like I think naming those things and understanding them is is important. So. Like understanding that, like, oh, I justify this because I believe in this idea of meritocracy and, and, and schools are all about meritocracy. But if we start to question the idea of meritocracy and understand that race actually affects meritocracy and, and which therefore means we don't actually have a meritocracy is like, OK, I have a problem here. Now, if I was going to exactly the second part you said is so now if I want to talk about valuing students and interacting with students and giving them access to meaningful um, meaningful curriculum, broadly speaking, curriculum. Well, well, how might that how might that be different? And then if someone says, "Well, they're not learning the standard course of study," well, then you can have a response, and we'll say, "There's a problem with the standard course of study. It assumes yeah. X, Y, and Z, and we can actually yeah. talk about these things, right?" We we so that kind of intervention, I think, and I, and I've seen teachers do that kind of intervention, so I know yeah. I know that's possible. Teachers and administrators. And again, often, sometimes individually, because they're just doing it by themselves in their closed classroom, other times because schools are taking up broader efforts to challenge, I can't remember the, the scholar who talks about, but the grammar of schooling, right? We think of school Yeah, like David Tayek. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the story of David Tayek. Yeah. yeah um, let's see. So then, I guess going back to kind of a more macro question, um, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, a lot of the, the, the bills or at least some of the bills that have been leveled against, against CRT or what, again, what they understand as CRT, which probably more anti-racism, broadly speaking. Yeah. Um, what are people getting wrong about CRT in, in, in these areas? Oh. What are the understandings that are maybe deficient? Because I will tell you, you know, I've read Kendi, I've read D'Angelo, I've read, critical race theorists like Charles Mills and to the extent that Derek Darby might put himself in, in, in CRT frameworks. And I got to say the criticisms you can level against Kendi and D'Angelo often will not land against Charles Mills 
and and Darby and even like Kimberly Crenshaw, they they won't land because they're not necessarily playing the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, one, you know, I encourage people to read some more folks to read some more critical race theorist folks in education, right? I mean, there are a who, lot. There are a lot of folks. Read, read, Gloria. Who would you recommend in terms of like a voice that like the, a popular audience could? Yeah, I mean, get stuff from you know, if it's a popular audience on. I'm trying to think of some, but you know, I mean. Gloria Latson Billings works on work on critical race theory is academic, but it's not it's but it's accessible, right? I mean and who is that again? Gloria Latson Billings, right? I mean, she's known for many, is is, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy. Um, but she's credited as her and William Tate are the are credited as the people who brought CRT into education. Right? Um, again, this gets into the question of like who is and who is not within CRT. Um would, is is does Bettina Love situate herself within critical she, race? There's some connections, but I don't think she I don't think she would call herself a critical race scholar. Again, I don't want to speak for her. We we had her come to the to the college to speak. Um, yeah, she does, certainly. But she's probably close she enough in terms of in, in abolitionist pedagogy now, right? And so, yeah. which is not the same as CRT, although there's certainly obviously similar perspectives. Um, no, so I think you know. Out in California, Dan, uh, Daniel Solorzano is a person to look for who I who I find his reading pretty his writing pretty easy to read. Um, you know, I can I can give you some other names of folks. There's, there's but there's a lot of people in critical race theory, right? I'll, and I'll you know it's been in education now for over twenty years. Um, there's been a lot of scholarship in critical race theory and education. Yeah. So one would be to to read that. Um, but I think. You know, the, what I think about the critiques against CRT, it's funny, is I, I, for so many of the things that I've seen, is like I don't see any actual critique of CRT other than the name CRT. Right. Like, they're critiquing anti-racist movements in general. So, what is, so um, maybe let's, let's rephrase it like this. What are some of the criticisms that you've seen leveled against CRT that turn out not to be actually really against anything that critical race theorists yeah, I think that like, there's this assumption I've seen in one of the bills that like that there's an intentionality about trying to make white people feel bad or guilty. Um, yeah. We talk about guilt in in anti-racist work, and in, in particular in critical race theory and critical whiteness studies. We'll talk about the role that white guilt plays, but it's never like there's there's never the saying white people are evil and should feel bad about this. Right. We're actually trying to be much more, in some ways, much more factual than that. Here's how racism plays out. As we've talked about, it's the systemic way, whether it's through grading practices, whether it's through sorting practices, um, sorting and stratification practices in school. The idea isn't that all white people are evil. The idea is that we have this we have this kind of cultural, structural racism happening that we all kind of take part in. And then in some ways, we purposely don't say white people are evil and people read that. Oh, you're saying white people are evil. Like it's almost no matter what we say in critical race theory or other anti-racist work that just bringing it up means that we're calling people racist or that we want them to feel bad. Um, which is interesting because we're not like they're, they're feeling bad on their own. Like they're, they're, they're feeling some kind of way about what we're saying. That's not our intent. And so interesting that some of the bills attack like any work that tries to make white people feel guilty is a problem. Okay, fine. That's not our intent. So we actually don't really have to change anything. Like, you know, it's, 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 right. it's, it's an interesting critique, right? Um, it's just one of them that I find interesting. There's I wonder some- if that's, 
I wonder if that's part of, at least as it plays out in kind of, uh, you know, popular discourse, I wonder if it's because there's a slippage in at least two of the terms that are being used. So the term racism does seem to have in some ways two meanings at this point. Like the classic meaning is it's this really bad kind of intention in a person's head, sort of a deliberate thought that you have. And then when critical race theorists and and kind of support, you know, folks who work in similar frameworks use the term racism, they're not necessarily meaning like this individual devious thought in your head. They're meaning something that may be structural, may be deeply below the level of awareness that you're not simply enacting by choice. It's yeah. And then the other is white supremacy. supremacy, Racism is all of those things. And I think there's ways we can define racism that captures all of them. There's intentional forms, there's unintentional forms, there's explicit, there's implicit, there's, there's benevolent racism where you're actually well-intentioned, you know, um, but but still supporting the structure. So we, we can actually come to a definition of that. So yeah, I think there's a different, there's different definitions happening of racism, but I, I think probably a couple things are happening in, in when we see those bills. I think one is there is on some level, this visceral response on the part of many white folks, not all white folks, when race and racism is centered so heavily because we're taught that we're often socialized to think that that shouldn't be that way. And so by bringing it up, it, it, we get this response. I think that's one thing that's happening. I really think a big part of it is this, a, is, is a much more just political discursive move is that people, there are many people who don't like the kind of increased platform that anti-racism, not even critical race theory, but anti-racism broadly speaking is now getting in the country, right? And it's it's many more programs and, and professional developments being on, on anti-racism. How many more, much more often I've been asked to speak on this subject in the past year, year and a half. And all the people I know do this work, same thing. We're like the busiest we've ever been in those kinds of engagements. Again, a lot of that because of the protest movement that happened after uh, George Floyd's murder. And so... You know, some of us are thinking, well, this was happening all this time. Why are you all of a sudden on board now? But okay, so at least you are. So let's talk about this. So I think that's, I think there's just like, they're seeing, I don't, my guess is there's this, they don't want to, they want to control the discourse. And then if this continues to happen, they no longer control the discourse and controlling discourse and language is really powerful, right? Because once you, once you control that, you set, you kind of, you set up, you set up the lexicon and the rules by which we're allowed to speak about things. And I think there's a fear about losing that control. And so there are these real active movements to try to regain and recontrol the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I also think that, that some of it is motivated by that kind of linguistic slippage of, Oh my God, you're saying white supremacy is everywhere that, and I take that somehow to mean that you're saying I'm burning crosses in my lawn and like, no, no one's saying you're burning crosses in your lawn. Um, right. But even you know, if you say that, it's almost a but, problem with it. I think, it's my, I think, yes, you're absolutely right. That's part of it. People hear, not even white supremacy, people hear racism and all of a sudden, like there's, there's that reaction to think, Oh, this is going to be about me being horrible. And, but no matter how many times we say that's not what it's about, that message, people people either hear that message or, or defend what we should be talking about with that same message, which speaks to me that there is actually something more real about race going on, right? And rather mm-hmm. than the opposite, it makes me think, wow, we're, we're mentioning this and you're continuing to use those arguments. And if you actually believe those arguments or, or, or those justifications that you're giving us, 
it's that actually speaks to me that race is affecting them more than they're than they're letting on, not less. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, then that right? Because because it's like, like yeah. no matter how many times we say this is not about you individually being a bad person, to continually say that you're individually trying to tell us we're that we're we're bad people is like somewhere in you. I think you think I think people get triggered by race. They they think they're bad people. Right. right, you know, and I think so, which tells me more something more about the structure of race than what we are doing in critical race theory, or even just broadly speaking, anti-racist movements to try to to try to bring issues of race more to the forefront of the discourse. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I do like to joke, and it's a bit more than a joke, but um, that nothing has proven Robin D'Angelo's white fragility thesis right oh. more than listening to intellectual dark web podcasts by white people, you know. Uh, railing against what they call CRT. Um, but okay. But that leads to maybe the last criticism that, that I hear, um, which is kind of an indelicate criticism. So forgive the, the bluntness of it, that what you've just kind of described to some people reads in some ways, like a religious way of thinking. And here's why there's nothing that a white person can say other than to consent to your message and agree with it that won't be interpreted as a, like an indicator of their racism. So in other words, it becomes unfalsifiable in the way a religion would be. And those who listen to the Sophia podcast, I did a show where we talked about the Nexium uh, cult or you know, a self-help group. And they came up with a term for this. Some of the ex members said it was, they called it throwing an issue back on its author. And what would happen is they would give the curriculum. And if someone ever had a problem with it and say, that doesn't make sense. Now that, that doesn't make sense. The leadership would find a way to say, Oh, that indicates that you haven't done the work. See, like there's an issue that you're having and clearly we've struck a nerve. So you need to do the work and you need the curriculum even more. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the frustrations is that the way that set up becomes almost impossible to depart from or object from or dissent from, if that makes sense. I, th I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you're going to do critical race theory, I think that's, that there's maybe some truth to that. I think if I'm, if I'm understanding the argument correctly, um, it would be like me saying, um, you know, Ben, are you, have you ever been a member of the communist party? And we're in, you know, like McCarthy era. And you're like, no, what are you talking about? I've never been a member of the Communist Party. I say, see how worked up you're getting? That tells me that you're probably a member of the Communist Party or, or that you have some issue around this. So, right? So, but it puts you in a bind where you at some yeah, point I realize I, well, there's nothing yeah, I can I say. I what you're saying, I think. But, you know, I think when the arguments come, when people disagree with what we're saying about racism, about the centrality of race and racism, is that that tenant of the centrality of race and racism comes with comes from not even like years but decades and decades of work analyzing and um documenting how racism how racism plays out i mean critical race theorists often go back to du bois right who who's you know obviously in, in sociology as well and other fields use du bois it's not like 20 years ago, critical race theory came into, into education and all of a sudden now there's more 
issues of race in, in education, right? I mean, there's been major issues of race in education and racial disparity in education as long as there's been, you know, an education system. So what we're trying to do with critical race theory in education is put a language to it to see how that functions. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and part of what you're saying is also that it's not like critical race theorists starting with, you know, Derek Bell on weren't appealing to strong empirical research to back mm-hmm. their claims, right? It's not like this was just quote unquote theory. This was theory that was backed by empirics, backed by historical analyses that, that appealed to. And, and maybe to that's, maybe people get thrown things. by the idea of theory in, or my use of the word framework. This is a framework to understand how race happens. But, you know, again, the way I use it is people are already seeing that race is an issue. We want to talk about it. So I say critical race theory does. Here's how it's helpful. Um, you know, the, the critique that, well, it already sets them an argument. You have to believe in it. And if you don't, it's because you haven't, you haven't done the work or, you know, whatever that argument is, is actually the same argument they're using on the other side. They're saying, well, I just, you know, I disagree with your thing. And if you don't believe it, it's just because you're being pedantic as a critical race theory. It's, yeah. of, it's, a, it's a circular yeah. argument. If, if you yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that. Arguably, with, we're, um, both, we're both doing the same argument, right? We're just different. And I right. think critical race theory is political. It does take sides. It's not party politics, but it is political. It does take sides. So, yes, it does say if you don't understand or don't believe in the, centri- in the, in the inherent normality of race, in the U.S., you're missing something. Yes, we are saying we are saying that. Yes, we are saying that. You saying that that's not true are also taking sides and saying something. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that especially with a particular critic um, named John McWhorter, who's you know been doing a lot of YouTube stuff, and he's writing a book called The Elect, um, where he analogizes his understanding of critical race theory with a religion, but. The same thing he's faulting CRT for, he could be faulted for as well. If you say CRT is a religion, then you're discounting that anyone who doesn't see the anti-CRT point is correct must be just indoctrinated. Like the only possible reason you don't see his point as correct is because you're indoctrinated. So it is in some ways like a very analogous um yeah, and there, and there are, and it's interesting that you know, and I understand, and I understand picking on CRT here because it has become kind of the central way in education, anyway, the central way, probably, the, or the most common way now to look at race among scholars. I don't know about in schools, but for example, what is it in American Educational Research Association? I think it's Division G, which is the social context. Um, any of the and race is often the topic that's talked about the most. Right. They get most submissions on race and of the race submissions, most of them involve CRT in some way. So right, it is gaining a hold in, in at least that aspect of the education field. Um, so maybe that's why it's the target. But there are critical scholars of race who are not critical race theorists. Right. There are, I mean, right. you know, post-colonial theorists have really incisive you know, um, views on race that are, that probably don't hold to the CRT framework. I'm sure there are folks who study, I know folks who do settler colonialism work who also involved in CRT and maybe some who aren't right. I think, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of perspectives out there. Critical race theories is one of them. It, it, it encompasses many because it is a critical race theory has become critical race studies in many ways. And there are these, these offshoots and it's more encompassing, but maybe, maybe part of their critique is just because, of critical race theory's popularity, 
I, you know, I'm sure there's a, yeah, it's a, it's a target at this point. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're a little over an hour, so we should probably end it there, but I hope people got uh, a good understanding, um, of CRT. And my hope, especially is people who are critical of CRT may come to this and hopefully, um, get at least a bit more of an informed understanding of, of, you know, what, what criticisms land, what criticisms don't land. Um, it, it's just so rare these days for whatever reason to see, especially the anti side have any really clear idea. Like I always ask people, what critical race scholars have you read before we talk? Let's, let's, I want to figure out what critical race scholars they've read. And it's very rare that people will give a response. And I, I find that a big shame. So um, I, I thank you for coming on the show. No, I appreciate you. Next fall, we'll see each other five doors down five doors in down. the actual office. Right, rather than, uh, yeah, the box on a screen. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, good. And, until that day comes. Thank you, Ben. Yep. Thank you too.